This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World and the new book, Changeability, a work of nonfiction exploring how to navigate change with more effectiveness and ease. How do you find courage? How do you become more effective in navigating change? Find out when you join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal Season 3, where my guest is Susan Harper, founder of Continuum Montage, an inspired teacher of perception and movement inquiry. On this show, I get to engage in fascinating conversations with amazing change makers and change writers about the very nature of change, the important personal and societal changes that they work with, and how to inspire you, the listener, in initiating or adapting to the changes that you want to see in your own lives. So today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Susan Harper, who is also a colleague and a dear friend. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. I am so, there's no one I know who embodies the movement of change and changeability more than you do, so I am just thrilled to be able to have this time to talk with you. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Great. So um, I, before we begin, I want to let the listeners know a little bit about you. Susan Harper is a continuum teacher a heart-soul counselor, creative instigator, and teacher of movement inquiries that lead to embodied discoveries. Her students call her a moving storyteller, a dream weaver, and one who opens portals into the vast space of creativity available in all human beings. Susan founded Continuum Montage after years of partnering Continuum Movement with Continuum founder Emily Conrad. Through Susan's work worldwide, students elaborate somatic awareness, creative expression, emotional communication, soulful movement, and creative thinking. Susan creates context for those who dare to listen at the edge and in the depths, who are aware of the adventure of courting the unknown. Susan teaches a wide range of skills and inquiry in the fields of movement, emotion, shock, and trauma resolution, dreams, perceptions, and relationship. These experiential contexts are relevant for professional therapists, somatic educators, artists, body workers, and anyone interested in the creative art of living. So Susan, I'm interested in the creative art of living. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, each of us has um, a kind of way that we organize our reality, our version of reality. We take in all the raw data through our eyes and our ears and our skin. We take in all the information that's coming in from a really ever-changing environment and context. And then we each have a way of organizing, making sense out of it all, making meaning and uh, just how we tend to relate our patterns, our habits, our tendencies, how we tend to move, how we tend to perceive, how we tend to relate. And so for me, the creative art is to help myself and others become more aware of tendency and possibility. 
Mm, I like that tendency and possibility. Yeah, and I really like to think of it as tendency and not have such fixed versions of ourselves in self-description. Oh, I am a, and then fill in the blank. But to go, okay, I have a tendency to be more introverted or extroverted or to prefer solitude or company. And yet to open for the possibility also of its opposite, to whatever degree that that's so. Or I've had a lifelong tendency to be shy and now something's coming where I'm starting to feel myself to take some risk, to be bold or surprise myself in some context, and to be watchful for those moments where we're stepping out of our usual way of behaving or organizing our versions of reality. That makes it the creative art of living. Yes, constantly moving, changing, surprising us, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really the key. It's like a quality of wonder, like mm. to live with enough wonder, to have help renew the eyes of wonder, especially in our most familiar circumstance, that familiarity sometimes makes us blind. We can't actually see anymore freshly. We're seeing our old pictures and symbols and meanings. And so to help refresh our eyes of wonder in order to see like even the same tree that I see every day outside my front door, when my eyes of wonder are there, I can actually whoosh, be in the uh, deep communion, body-to-body, living presence-to-living presence. And I'm touched, and I'm touchable, and I'm touching the life that I'm looking at by the way I see. So one of the questions I often ask is how to how to liberate or invite the eyes of wonder to come back in when my eyes have gotten dull and, um, and too repetitive. I can see I'm seeing in the same way again. Like, hmm, that can't possibly be so because we're living in a, in a state of creative flux, really. Um, and it's amazing how long things do appear to stay the same to us and mostly because we keep seeing them in the same way. Mm. So how do you actually renew the eyes of wonder? How do you actually do it? Yeah. So one way is through the actual habit of seeing. So for example, if I'm in focal gaze most of the time, then I see only a small amount, a fraction of what's going on. I see detail and color, but a little bit of my energy tends to leak out through my eyes and be in that highly focal gaze uh, on the whatever it is I'm attuned to. And if I let my eyes go from being so focal to panoramic gaze, like take in whatever the object of interest is that I'm viewing, and actually open to the whole context, in the opening to the whole of the context where things aren't as detailed, aren't as uh, sharply in focus, there's a moment where I'm breathing in the entirety of the context. And then next step is to allow the receiving gaze, that I let whatever it is I'm gazing upon, actually the livingness of that touch me. 
Mm. Often when we look through focal gaze, it has a tendency to go to the cortical, the wording part of our brain, and we tend quickly to go to categories. That's a tree, not a bush, not a sidewalk, not a house. And we live then in our categories of association. In the receiving gaze, there's a moment where it's non-worded. I'm not, it's in the animal part of the brain, subcortical part of the brain. And I'm literally with the vibration, the textures, the colors, and how those are singing inside of me, vibrating, touching me. And then all of a sudden we're in a moment of communion exchange of consciousness, really, we could say. The consciousness of that tree in its display and my consciousness are in a moment of communing and meeting. And out of really any good meeting comes change. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you're asking... uh, we are asking by opening up our perceptions in this way to see something new and to see what is not yet known. And yes, exactly. And what? It's like we're, mm-hmm. Yeah, go on. Well, it's like we're seeing what we've known all along, and we're also at the same time simultaneously seeing what we don't know. Right. So, so many people, when it comes to the idea of change or actually making change or moving into change, um, you know, say that they're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of what they can't see or what they can't know. And you, so much of the work that you do is about courting the unknown, courting what hasn't even yet come into form. Yes. Can you talk about this? Yeah. You know, it's so ironic because really what we're mostly afraid of are known events in the past that didn't go well, mm. that we assume we we have a picture of that, something awful like that's going to happen again. If we had events that came in unexpectedly that were not digestible or metabol- we couldn't metabolize them, then we grow with a kind of fear of, uh-oh, like the unknown is dangerous always. And we don't notice how many moments where the unknown is arriving to us and it's totally pleasurable. All the moments of surprise, a new friendship emerges and then uh, a new life comes out of that friendship. And we didn't notice that moment as being the unknown coming into our known world. And in all the surprising little moments of engagement, through the unknown moments of meeting becoming known, we grow. Or we might have like gotten um, in grade school, in high school, in college, in university, we got Fs in the American system for not knowing. And you got, to, mm. you got rewarded mm. for knowing, for being able to give the right categorical answer to a question. And that doesn't promote creative thinking. It's like through memorization and through um, those kinds of learning processes, I give the right answer, I know my material, I get rewarded. And so the um, creative arts are the place where tapping the unknown is, is, um, is encouraged in music. When we hear music, maybe not the very first time we heard a kind of music we've never, ever heard before, We might not like it, but sometimes it's like just hearing a piece of music, a kind of style of music we've never heard before, and it's unknown to us. 
but it comes in and somewhere in our deep soul or our psyche we're finding a new rhythm or a, the melody is stroking me in such a way that I feel my heart opening or I feel a certain chaos like I didn't know that somebody could give music to express the chaotic roar that's in my system and all of a sudden that unknown moment is is a, is becoming known to me and lets something both known and unknown in me have a corresponding place of expression and um oh my gosh, somebody else knows about this that I didn't even know I knew. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes I read um, writers who write or a piece of music or I see somebody moving and it just, it's like, it's like coming home to an aspect of myself that I have somewhere always known but didn't know and was totally unknown to me that that particular kind of expression could exist. I guess one more example, like I grew up in Kentucky, and when we were 16, we moved to the Washington, D.C. area, and I was so excited to find out that there were all these other styles of talking, dressing, different kinds of foods to eat, uh, different ways of moving. It was like, because I was suddenly in a more international context, that my soul just flew awake, and of course, through all my travels, that's always been the case, traveling in in Africa, in Bali, in Egypt, in Thailand, in Borneo, in um, Tibet, to be exposed and um, brought into ceremony and ritual and ways of perceiving and constructing reality that are both so in one sense at the first time seeing it foreign, but at the same time, oh, my gosh, so familiar. Oh, thank you that this exists, that there are these other ways of of dreaming and praying and loving and singing and then finding like, okay, and then we all cry and weep over basically similar things. We all get elated over similar things like uh a mother in another country who delights in her child's um, new activity of of their little creative life, you know, something like that. We see, ah, and sometimes if I would be in an exchange of movement, like one time in Tibet I was with the ritual movement master, that we were way in a remote part of Tibet, and one of the monks saw me dancing, just I was dancing to a flute that was playing off in the distance. And so he brought me, and he invited me to move. I didn't know who I was being brought to, so I just moved a little bit, and then the Tibetan ritual master would move a little bit, and I would try to copy his very beautiful Tibetan movement, um, Buddhist movements, and I was he would laugh, and I would laugh, and then I would do my like wave motion and jellyfish pulsing, waving, and he would try. And we were in hysterical, like, exchange of movement for, like, I don't know, maybe a half an hour. We couldn't speak each other's languages at all, but we talked in the language of movement that neither of us could really do the other style, but we could see and perceive and feel that there was something there that was both known and unknown. So I just noticed... That's so beautiful. You know, as I'm hearing, because you're someone who has traveled so much and you teach in so many places all, 
all over the world and you were raised in a in a in another culture and you've lived in so many different cultures um do you feel that to what extent is safety a feeling of safety necessary in order to be able to uh lean into the unknown yeah we we all have to have enough safety to take risks. And initiatory rituals, for example, would really push that, like how much safety is really needed. But in our Western world, first we have to establish like enough basic sense of safety and um, uh, um, like trust of organismic timing, a psyche readiness also. And at the same time, too much safety is, um, if we go to try to make everything so, so, so safe, we never take another step. We, like, start to um, strangle in, in the, in the um, I don't know what word to call it, but it's, just, it's in that place where we get too, too safe. Sure. I think there's, yes, there's some amount of, like, resonance with the situation and with the people with whom I with whom I take risk that gets established both for me like as I'm meeting different people in different contexts and then also when I try to do when I'm opening up ritual or movement or creative um, places of play and entering into the unknown is to establish enough sensibility that we're all listening here. We're paying attention. There's awareness is happening. And the purpose, really, of, of entering more unknown is to help us actually have more awareness, to come to more awareness. We could say there's like an ongoing field of awareness that's pervasive in everything, in space. It's ongoingly there. And our process is more a process of awakening into awareness. Mm-hmm. Like my, my friend and person that I teach with, Lama Dreme, he often says, the teachings are for our consciousness. Awareness is already, it's already intact. In my language, you know, I would say awareness is already whole. And our consciousness is learning new things in order to rest more fully in wholeness, and wholeness holds safety and risk. It holds uh, danger and possibility. It holds um, the night and, and the daytime, light and dark. Um, wholeness is holding the whole. So our sense of enough safety to meet more of the wholeness of what's actually occurring. And mostly when people don't feel safe is that some place inside needs to be met. Some place that's just still scared. And that scared doesn't need to be fixed. It needs to be met as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we come to meet with wholeness, the part of us that's separated, that's, that has the perceptual cut. Like we're never not whole. We're actually always whole, but we have a perceptual cut or a belief or a feeling or an opinion that we're separate, and then we suffer. And the suffering needs to be met. The feeling of of being so um, like sometimes those of us who live at the edge of the unknown in modern culture, we're in 
we're not in the mainstream. We're in strange tributaries of, <laughs> of larger aspects of life that are also available to be known. And so some of us who live at the edge don't always feel so safe in the mainstream, or somebody else might feel incredibly safe. Uh, their kind of known world that's coming to them from from mass media or from cultural agreements. And some of us are like streaming and listening and hovering at the edge of of the greater, like there's just so much more to life than whatever the mainstream is of any culture. There's just always more. And then yeah. there's from the tangible, palpable world to the unseen, to the like mythic, archetypal, imaginal realms that are also here with us and and working us. And so sometimes, in a process, I might be helping somebody begin to feel enough safety to let their own imagination open, and then in that comes the activity of re-symbolizing, which is a hugely important one. What do you if mean like by I, that? What do you mean yeah, by well, re-symbolizing? Yes, yeah, so if I keep the same, the symbol the same for everything, like a snake means in the in the fundamentalist world, the snake means a symbol of evil, and I keep stick to that forever. And in another world, the symbol is the symbol of regeneration and then i stick that's always what the symbol means and for somebody else no no the symbol is the the snake is the symbol of raw sexual force and then i always stick to that and i don't ever actually come back to be and dwell with and and feel the life uh, activity of snake of serpent i want to let the symbol keep opening to me through the life of the animal that it's that it's connected to, for example. Or another example might be that I have an event that happens early in my life and I keep telling the story the same way, the same way over and over and over. And the the event, we can't go back and change the event, but we can go back and investigate our experience of an event. And in the process, we can come in to re-symbolize who that person was and what they meant to me. Um, give you a concrete example, growing up with my grandparents who were felt that dance should have been forbidden and should have been written in the Ten Command- Commandments. Whoa. Yeah. And considering, so, considering who you are, it's pretty whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so for a long time I kept my grandparents, I, I froze them in that way of seeing them. They were people who believed this, this, and this. And now that they're long-time ancestors, meaning they died quite some years ago, and I continue to be in relationship with my version of each of them, I have come to see that, oh, the way my grandfather actually loved to dance when he was an evangelist, and he would be dancing while he was praying. He didn't know he was dancing, but he was. Mm-hmm. And I could all of a sudden remember as a child, oh, he communicated with me through his movement, through his dance, in a way he might not have ever been allowed to acknowledge that in his circumstance. So I can re-symbolize my version of him and let him grow in my psyche and perhaps also in however that works as an ancestor spirit, that 
he may be dancing in his his terrain where he is now. Hmm. I can let him grow. So to re-symbolize those people we love in our life, and we have very fixed versions of them in our way we describe them, mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute, time to re-symbolize. How else could I see this person? I'm suffering in the way I'm describing them. And my description is always more narrow than the vastness of who anyone else is or anything else. So how can I let the, myself notice, wow, this is how I symbolize this person, and then how can I let that grow, let the air in, like let the fresh air in to the moment? Hubert Godard, also another person that I teach with, he's a French teacher of perception and movement and coordination. He would often say, it's like in your inner psyche you have an old museum and it's a curator long ago died and just is dusty in there. And a new curator comes in and opens up all the windows and takes down old art and starts putting up new images, new art, or brushes off old art and lets the, lets the paint kind of come back alive or reinvigorates it by putting it in a new place in the room, which lets you see it differently. And so the inner curator, we need to have a, a very alive process with the inner curator of our living, creative life as an art uh, in order to keep re-symbolizing and freshening the way we create images of one another and of, especially of ourselves and of our own bodies and our own two well-known self-descriptions. Right, and this re-symbolizing comes in as an invitation. You know, it comes in yeah. as a as an asking, what else, how else? And, um, yeah. you know, you are so known for your gentleness and for um, your relatedness and for the safety that you create in all of the inquiry processes that you lead. And, um, you know, it sometimes people can't get there on their own, right? I mean, they need... A lot, mostly. Yeah. They need I need st- help. I need help. When I'm dealing in parts of my own psyche or like strong early beliefs that got locked in, I need help from somebody who can sit with me that's not attached to identification in the way I am there. And I need to do that with others. Like, like through the gentleness, it's really basically like a kindness of just simple recognition of of how tender we all are in how we form ourselves. And then, you know, surprisingly with enough safety, we can go into such inner territory that feels so dangerous, really, to even touch it. But when there's kindness and acceptance for the just the wholeness of what is, then it becomes more and more possible to be safe enough to take to touch what feels so dangerous and maybe at one time or another was too dangerous for us to touch mm-hmm. in a certain circumstance, life circumstance that we may have been in. And I believe we do need help because most of the healing, like the wounding that took place was interpersonal, inaccurate mirroring, uh, belittling, uh, bullying, whatever it is. So to really meet the 
wound of that means to be seen there. And we were seen inaccurately. That is a terrible uh, uh, wound in us. We want our gifts and our innate capacities to be known, but we want them to be reflected well in community. So part of healing is that the person who's in the role of the facilitator is is resonating in themselves with that, all that similar material and coming in to simply meet and to uh, give accurate reflection and to meet the anguish of the inaccurate reflection that occurred. And in that portal of meeting, something occurs, not to fix it, not to heal it, not to do something about it, but just simply to meet the dynamism, the grief, the ouch, and in the process of meeting, we're supplying an interpersonal handshake, uh, um, holding, um, arm-in-arm, here-we-are moment. Yes, a recognition and and a shared resonance in this moment, whatever that moment is. Yes. The shared resonance, the shared attunement, like the that we're physiologically vibrating together. Like I can actually get what you're telling me, not just at the word level of wording, but at the our physiologies are in a in a co-regulating, attuned moment, and meeting is happening where meeting was dangerous or hurtful in the past. This is a moment where meeting is is holing and it's bittersweet most of the time because when we're getting met where we always needed to be met it stings at first it's like bringing sweet water to a wound at first it hurts and that's in a way part of the point we meet what hurts and the deep need of like the ritual of grief to cleanse the psyche like a bath cleanses the body we we need little and large <laughs> grief rituals periodically because it's hard to be alive and human and to have so many misattuned moments that occur in a life. Partly those misattuned moments happen because we're all so unique and, and, uh, and really like wild and idiosyncratic in so many ways. So, Sometimes it's not so easy to find the way to really meet, and we all suffer with that as well as grow with that. Mm. So beautiful. You are so um, exquisite uh, in, in the way in which you articulate what you say because I know that it doesn't just, it's not just words. It comes from such a deep felt sense and such a deep um, resonance with the quality that you're describing. Thank you, and I thank you. I, and I really bow to all of the people, all of my teachers and friends and colleagues who have also sat with me where I needed help. My parents did at times, they were both times of misattunement and times of great listening. And so I also just give a bow to all those who have helped me to then go on to sit with myself and others in the ways that I know how to do. They always just come, I think, from 
the kind of uh, for, the good fortune of meeting one another. And also from doing things like what you're doing here, Sharon, like to put out into the world where we can hear people who live through life experience and then offer different possibilities through spoken word, written word, movement, art, um, song that gives us a way to tap something outside of the context if I'm living in a too narrow context. I'm so grateful for that we have all these ways like what you do to help people know uh, more possibilities do actually exist. Mm. Yes, and you can and you can meet them and be met in them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, Susan, I can't believe that our time is coming to a close. Um, I just love how you speak and how you see the world with such possibility, both the both the seen world and the unseen world with such possibility. So um, I would like you to um, just let people know how they can find you, how they can find out more information about you, how they can attend one of your workshops, your classes. Yes, so I have a website. It's Continuum Montage, one word, that's spelled C-O-N-T-I-N-U-U-M-M-O-N-T-A-G-E dot com. And email address is susanharper2012 at gmail.com. Those are probably the two best ways to uh, take a look. And I highly recommend that people take more than a look. (laughs) They (laughs) take a step. That They take lots of steps. Um, Thank you so much. This has been just beautiful. I've learned so much even uh, in, this, in this conversation. Even though I've had many conversations with you, I'm always learning from you. Thank you so much, Sharon. Likewise. Um, okay. And thank to you also con- for this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to be yeah. continued, I hope. Yes. Bye. And thank you to all the listeners. Absolutely. This has been Passing for Normal conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about Changeability, the book, and about all of the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.